The Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, February hardcover and trade paperbacks are in. Plus, we continue our ongoing audiobook serialization of Timothy Zahn's Cobra, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour. It's a pleasure to have you along. I am Bain Associate Editor and your podcast host, David Afshirod. Today, Sean Patrick Hazlett talks with editor David Boop and contributors Walter John Williams, Hank Schwabel, Brenda Cooper, and Ken Scholes about High Noon on Proxima B, a new anthology of space western stories. But first, the news. The February hardcovers and trade paperbacks are in. Let's take a look. First up, we have What Price Victory, edited by David Weber. The mission to boldly explore David Weber's honorverse and to deliver all the action, courage, daring do, and pulse-pounding excitement of space naval adventure with tales set in a world touched by the greatness of one epic heroine, Honor Harrington. New Honorverse stories by Timothy Zahn and Thomas Pope, Jane Linskold, the Honorverse Czech translator Jan Kotek, and Joel Presby, plus First Victory, an all-new novella by David Weber. New Honorverse tales by Timothy Zahn and Thomas Pope, Jane Linskold, Jan Kotek, and Joel Presby, plus First Victory, an all-new novella by David Weber. Next up, we have High Noon on Proxima B, edited by David Boop. It's always high noon somewhere. Adventure, danger, revenge, and a mail-order robot gunslinger in a wedding dress? Only in the wildest parts of space could this happen. It's time again to get in your ramshackle rocket ship and journey to the universe's western territories with this follow-up to Gunfight on Europa Station. Ten Tales of the West. Not as it was, but as it might be. And Dead Man Walking by Simon R. Green. Ishmael Jones is called in to solve the mystery of a rogue secret agent who came in from the cold to spill all he knew, only to end up murdered in detention. Then his body goes missing. Then other people start dying. Has the murdered agent risen from the dead to get his revenge? How can all this be happening in one of the most secure interrogation centers? As Ishmael and his partner Penny dig deeper into what's really going on, secrets are revealed and horrors are uncovered. But so many people are dying, they have to wonder if anyone will be left to reveal the answer to. That's What Price Victory, High Noon on Proxima B, and Dead Man Walking, all available now. And that's it for the news. I am here with David Boop and company to discuss High Noon at Proxima Bravo or B, depending on how you want to say it. I like Bravo, but as part of the Bain uh, free radio podcast. So before we get started, I just want to go around the horn and have each of the authors and editors, the editor, uh, introduce themselves in just a quick bio of who you are and how you got involved. So David, let's start with you. 
Hi, I'm David Boop. I'm a Denver-based author and editor. Um, this is my fifth anthology for Bain. Uh, I did three weird westerns um, first, and then uh, this is my second space western. Uh, the first was uh, Gunfight on Europa Station, which came out last year, um, and uh, just continuing on with the theme. I just know too many good authors that write this stuff, and honestly, I just uh, I can't get enough of reading their stories, so hopefully you guys can't either, because there's another one after this one. So, Outstanding. Uh, yeah. All right, well, thank you, David. Ken Scholes? Uh, yes, my name is Ken Scholes. I am a uh, science fiction and short story, primarily a short story writer out in the Pacific Northwest, but I'm better known, oddly enough, for my five novels uh, that comprise the Psalms of Isaac, published by Tor and available from Amazon and Audible and all those places. Um, I've been writing in print for about 23 years. I also split time as a singer-songwriter, so I stay a little busy, and I've slowed down a little bit, but uh, anytime David Boop comes to me and says, excuse me, sir, but could you please write me some weird Scolesian thing, I'm going to pretty much say yes to David, so I'm here today with great delight, uh, because he once again asked me to play baseball on his team. <laughs> All right, well, thank you, Ken, and welcome. Walter John Williams. Hi, uh, I've uh, been doing this a while. Um, I've been uh, supporting myself as a writer for over 40 years, and I've written uh, over 40 volumes of fiction, some of which you see behind me here. Um, that is uh, the Praxis, my um, uh, operatic space series, I guess you'd call it. Um, and uh, I'm probably best known for the novel Hardwired, which came out over 30 years ago um, and is still my best-selling book. Um, but I recommend any of my stuff to you, um, including uh, the story I have for this anthology. Outstanding. Hank. Hi, uh, I'm Hank Schwabel. Uh, I write primarily horror, but I do occasionally write science fiction stories. Um, I got into this anthology through a mutual contact with David, uh, who I guess recommended me, and David reached out, and I uh, was very happy to do it because Westerns, science fiction. I mean, that's all you had to say, space western, and I was there. Um, I've written uh, mostly mostly novels, if you look at uh, how long I've spent doing them, but uh, I've got uh, a collection out now, and I've written a prior collection, and I've written four novels, and uh, and I, you know, I tend to keep busy uh, with short stories in between my novels, mostly horror, though. All right. Thanks, Hank. Cliff. Hi, I'm Cliff Winnig. I'm a uh, California-based, uh, so I live in the West, uh, science fiction fantasy writer. Uh, this is my second time appearing in one of David Boop's anthologies. I was also in Straight Out of Deadwood. And uh, I got into it because David asked me to send him a story for that. And uh, he apparently liked it because he bought it and then asked me to be in this. So here I am. I have a number of other stories out in various places, including the uh, Escape Pod podcast, a story called The Call of the Sky, uh, which anyone can listen to if they like or read online. And uh, I also, like Ken, am a musician. I play sitar, which is why I moved to California to study with the great uh, Indian music maestro Alec Rakan many years ago, mm. and I'm still here. So I'm going to correct you there for a moment, Cliff, because that's not what happened. 
Oh no! What happened was that I mentioned in at a convention what the title for the second book was. Well, I was going to get get to that specifically. Talk about <laughs> and story. he said, "I already have a story for you just on that title." Um, I wasn't really given much of a choice. <laughs> uh, to be fair, you um, said you were going to have me in the third book. Okay, well. So you're like going to have me in one of them. Yeah. <laughs> There's got to be a story behind that, but I'm not going to push it. Uh, there is, and I'll, when we get to my story, I'll tell you. Okay. All right, well, welcome, Cliff. Thank you. Brenda, last but not least. All right. Hi. Um, like Ken, I'm also from the Pacific Northwest. Um, I'm a technologist, a futurist, and a writer, mostly of science fiction, often climate fiction. Um, I do a lot of short fiction. My most recent short fiction piece came out in Anthropocene magazine um, in December. I had the piece out in Slate last year, so you can find a lot of my short fiction online pretty easily. Uh, I do have a number of novels. Um, I haven't had a novel out for a couple of years, mostly because I've been busier working on the futuring side of my world. And, and um, unlike some of you folks, I still have a day job. So, you know, that I work in, in IT and construction, which is just a total blast and I love it. So, and I love writing and I was really happy to be invited into this anthology and it was fun to be part of it. Thank you, Brenda. All right. a lawyer. So, I'm a lawyer by day. I just don't like telling people that's embarrassing. So. <laughs> we won't hold it against you. Can we? Oh, uh, we, we might. It was an honor to, that these guys responded um, to my, my, my call. I mean, every one of them, um, I've read their works and they're just amazing. Um, and especially getting to work with Walter, um, after reading so much of his stuff over the years, he's like, I can check that one off of a, off of a list of people I wanted to work with. And he gave me an amazing story. So oh, well, I'm very you. happy. All right. So David, you've done, this is kind of your fifth anthology for Bain. I think most, most, I think all of them are about the West in some form, right? And this one is the second in kind of the space Western genre. How did this come about and how is it different from the last one? So, um, what happens is, is sometimes you look at, at where, what you've produced and you say, what's the logical progression from there, right? So I did the weird Westerns, which were all terrestrial, uh, uh, earth-based, right? Mm -hmm. They were all, you know, set here uh, in the past. And I'm like, the Western thing is certainly something that I'm known for. I've written a lot. My new novel is a weird Western and everything like that. So I wanted to continue with that theme, uh, but I just didn't want to do another three weird Westerns. I could have easily filled it, especially with, with some of these guys, but I wanted to look at how do I, you know, evolve this to the next level. And so what we, what I pitched to Tony was basically, we're off to outer space. We're leaving planet earth. Um, and, uh, she liked it and Jim liked it and everybody liked it. And, you know, so I, I put together the first one and the first one was interesting because of course I'm editing space Westerns for the first time. Right. I've edited some science fiction and I've 
edited, you know, pretty much everything at some point, Pulp Heroes and, and so forth. But Space Western, which has more in common with like space opera than it does Weird Western, meant that I had to kind of change my approach when looking at the stories, specifically regarding uh, the idea of science, right? With the Weird Western, which is mostly fantasy-based, even though you can have science fiction, especially steampunk and so forth in there, I had to make sure that the authors that were giving me the stories knew that I wanted believable science. I didn't want you know, hand waving. I didn't want just fantasy science, right? Mm -hmm. I wanted stuff that actually potentially could happen. Um, and, and the question was that I posed to all of them is, is space the final frontier, right? What is it like? What are we going to encounter out there? Less from a... Um, science fiction television show less from uh uh you know space movies and things like that i wanted to explore what life on that frontier would be like and it's it was it was well received um coming into the second one i had a better idea of the type of stories that people liked in the first one and I aimed more towards that. And usually with my second anthologies, I tend to go a little darker. Um, I don't know that I necessarily went darker, but I definitely went harder on this one. And uh, I'm kind of, I'm really happy with how it came out. And people who have pre-read it and reviewed it so far seem to have been as well. So something's working. <laughs> All right, my friend, that's a great introduction. So let's start with the first story here, which is High Noon on Proxima. Bravo, B. I don't know what you want to call it, uh, Cliff, uh, but it is the namesake. Would say B. Uh, it is the namesake of the uh, the entire anthology. So tell us a little bit about the story and the characters. Well, uh, you know, David is correct. I did kind of grab him by the lapels when I learned the title of this book and and say, I have an idea for this story. So I, I have the title story only because I liked the title and wrote and pitched a story. Uh, and David liked that. And there you go. So uh, the idea is, you know, Proxima Centauri B is a real planet that we have discovered by the so-called wobble method, which I'm not going to get into. But uh, it's in the habitable zone around the star Proxima Centauri, which is a cooler than our star. It's a red dwarf. So the habitable zone works out that it's uh, it's got an 11.2 day orbit. So it's very close, which mm -hmm. means the planet is either something like Mercury in a, re a resonance orbit or something like our moon and tidally locked with one side facing the sun all the time. And I thought, ooh, what if it's tidally locked? then high noon is a place and not a time. And so I made the town of high noon on the planet Proxima Centauri B. And that town is very hot and unpleasant, but is also the solar energy collecting farm for the whole planet. And it then sends the energy to the more reasonably temperate cities on the, in the twilight and then a city called Midnight on the far side. And uh, my protagonist, Jocelyn uh, Stark, is the unfortunate 
um, town, unfortunately, the town marshal of High Noon. <laughs> and uh, she rides an eight-legged sand lizard. And um, she has to deal with uh, three killers arriving by train at the beginning of the story. And that's that's the setup. So it's kind of uh, a third Western, a third hard science fiction, and a third planetary romance, like John Carter of Mars kind of thing, all mixed together into one story. What were some of the challenges in developing the plot when reconciling the facts of or the sci- the hard science fish- fiction a- aspect? So, you know, how did you decide on flora and fauna with a world that has a twilight zone, uh, a dark zone, and then a high noon zone, uh, psychological factors of, you know, sun never setting, essentially? Talk through a little bit of that as you're trying to come up with a narrative for it. Sure. Um, Well, the hardest challenge was making the planet habitable um, and making that part of the planet habitable. I had to give it a pretty good uh, magnetic field to get rid of, you know, charged particles that would irradiate the surface. I I had to put in some serious high high winds that would uh, distribute the heat. Um, All of these are possible, but not necessarily true of the real planet. Um, but it needed to hold on to a breathable atmosphere. And so I made most of the life on the planet in that band that the story doesn't take place in. Um, the sand lizards evolved in the twilight area and other, other megafauna and flora that did. So the, the high noon area is basically a desert. It's a, it's a very kind of, uh, well, Barsoomian kind of landscape, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's very like, like our Mars. Um, and so once I had worked out like how to keep this, how to give this planet a viable ecosystem with multicellular life, that was most of it. And then I just had to um, uh, blend in the, the other elements that I wanted for the story and make that work. And so uh, I had a lot of fun like creating the, the few bits of, of lore about that planet life form and ecosphere that need I needed for the story. I didn't need to actually work out the entire ecology of the whole planet because mostly we're in this sort of desert environment where not where normally there isn't a lot of large life forms. But uh, it's not toxic or anything like that. So um, and then I had to kind of work out the economics of why in a world where there's no faster than light travel, we would bother to send enough people to the Proxima Centauri system to colonize it. And it worked out to giant mining corporations that had already been mining the um, asteroid belt and the Kuiper belt and maybe even a little of the Oort cloud. And once you're already out there, from our Oort cloud to whatever Oort cloud surrounds Proxima Centauri, it's not such a ridiculously long distance. So, so it was all these um, it was the these mining giants that got people out there. And so there's a there's a theme that's like the Western theme, like how gold got you know minor 49ers out to California. The mm-hmm. uh, the mining uh, the mining mostly doesn't take place on Proxima Centauri B. It mostly takes place in the asteroid belt of that system. But they needed a place for people to live and pe- you know and with a with a decent gravity well, uh, so that your you know your bone density stays up and things like that. And all of that is 
it's there and it's what I call the scaffolding for the story. It's not mm -hmm. in the story, but it's how I built the world so that it makes sense to the reader. And so, any key takeaways you want people to come out of the story with after reading? Um, well, there are some themes that I noticed after I finished <laughs> that kind of got in there. <laughs> that's, that's, that, that's basically the way it always is, right? <laughs> right, like themes are what the academics tell me my story was after I'm done with it. Um, so I noticed that there is a sort of an anti, you know, corporation theme in Westerns, a lot of Westerns, and I, I figured that out by writing this one. Um, so my protagonist is that kind of individualistic person who really doesn't like other people all that much and really hates rich people and really hates big major corporations. And she's, uh, High Noon is kind of an independent town. It's not run by any particular corporation. It's neutral territory. So that's mm -hmm. why she puts up with the heat and everything else. But uh, unfortunately, the person she's going to have to, or the people, I should say there's two people that she has to try and save from the three gunslingers who are arriving by train uh, are in fact, uh, uh, related to the trillionaires who run one of the mining corporations. So she has to get out of her comfort zone right away and try and protect these trillionaires from other trillionaires who are wanting to do what is in the Proxima system, a hostile takeover, which uh, usually involves um, actual hostilities. <laughs> so, because it is the wild west in space. All right, outstanding. All right, let's go to our first, the next story, uh, The Planet and the Pig. Brenda, talk us through it. You're on mute. You're on mute. It's on Zoom where you're muted. Lower left part of the screen. So sorry, working with two screens in my and not in my regular office and all of that. So all right, planet in the pig. All right. So uh, to start out with, I set it there because I have a couple of books that are set in this sort of phenomenal um, extra solar system where there are only two planets and neither of them have very many people on them. And most of the people actually live in orbital um machines, they live inside of large robots, they live inside of asteroids that have been hollowed out, that sort of thing. And um, the planet's not very peopled because essentially it was destroyed kind of in the way that we're trying, I think, potentially to do that to Earth. And then it was turned into a, uh, a place where people are trying to preserve it, to help it. And of course, a lot of the bad people are going to want to go in and say, hey, I want to get into this preserve. I want to do the things I'm not supposed to do. I want to get in trouble. Um, I had this lovely character named Charlie Windar, who I absolutely adore, who's a uh, ranger. I wanted to give him a role. 
And, uh, and I wanted to have a damsel in distress. I thought a damsel in distress was probably a good thing to put in a Western. So I started with a damsel in distress. Uh, my um, heroine is a mother who is on her own trying to survive in this reasonably brutal environment. She gets caught by some fairly bad people who put her up to attempting to do um, what really ends up being a mistake, but they basically trick her into trying to do something um, in order to earn their trust. And I don't want to say much more because if I say much more in the story, it might make it a little bit less fascinating to finish. Um, but I love the planet. I love the place it's set on. I love the world that it's set in. And um, and I think it was important sometimes to have something from a female point of view in a uh, in a Western series. I haven't got through all the stories, but most of them are are not. So I think the, are the ones that I've read so far. So I thought that was something I wanted to add to this as well. Same question I posed to Cliff, which is there's actually a lot of varied fl uh, flora and fauna in this particular planet. How did you come up with that? I want to say it was like 0.9 the gravity of I'm probably mm -hmm. getting Earth. So how did how did that play in? You know, how did that play in, and how did it, among other factors, determine how you came up with some of the flora and fauna for the planet? Well, it's very uh, rich, very fecund, very wild. Um, it's uh, very wet. It's a wet planet. You saw there were rivers and streams and things like that on it. There's a lot of variety. Um, similar, I think, to what more wilder parts of, say, the Amazon or some of the other places on the earth that are largely um, jungle would look and feel like. Um, and I really just built it on being earth, but different enough from earth that you would know you were in a different place. So that's why I didn't give it like half a gravity. I've written that kind of thing before. But on this particular planet, I'm trying to simulate a little bit of what a place as beautiful as where we live might look and feel like. And then of course I gave it some new stuff and there's some pretty big predators there too, which is kind of fun. There's some nasty predators. In fact, there's lots of nasty predators on this planet. So that makes it a little hard for humans to deal with it. Yeah, there's a little, I mean, without giving too much away, there's a little bit of luck too, vis-a-vis -vis that. Yeah. <laughs> so in terms of kind of themes in this particular story, what would you say are the most dominant ones? I think if there's themes here, they're family and how important family is and how important hope is. And... Um, and caring. I mean, in a way, it's an act of caring that helps ultimately resolve the issues that show up in the story for the family. And it's an act of caring for a wild thing. All right. And anything you want to leave readers with, what should they kind of come away with as after they finish reading it? What would you hope that they would come away with? I would hope they came away with the idea that there are beautiful places both here and potentially in the other places that we might travel to in some far future. Hopefully it's sooner rather than later. All right, uh, Ken, let's talk a little bit about uh, Harley taking on a wife. Yeah, uh, well, here we it go. Gets, right? It gets a little bit of a surprise in the beginning, but uh, I'm not going to give any more away than that. 
So talk us, like, how did you come up with that? (laughs) Well, I kind of did the opposite of what Cliff and Brenda did. Um, Because I didn't do any science or any thinking about any of that. I'm kind of a social science fiction writer. So of everybody in this, I haven't read everything in this book, but I'm willing to, I'm almost always willing to bet that I'm the most black box science guy you'll ever find, given that I'm probably the only recovering Southern Baptist preacher in the room who disbelieved all of his science all through his educational track until he was out of college and got some therapy. Um, but so I, you know, my story is really about uh, loneliness and uh, it's about Harlan Roscoe Sussbauer. Uh, I live not far from Sussbauer Road, actually. Things in my life end up in my stories, um, but Harley Sussbauer's lonely. And we state the problem right there in that first paragraph, like they tell us short story writers we got to do. He's lonely. He's out of sorts. He needs companionship. He knows there's a problem. And of course, he's practical. So he gets a plant first. And things just kind of keep going wrong from there. Um, and I, by I don't the, by the way, too- I don't know if this was if it was meant to be this way, but every time that Cactus speaks, I think in the voice of John Wayne. I don't know if that's that because, was- Yes, I did that to you with a clever trick by calling him Duke. Pilgrim. And, yeah. um, and Daisy, later we had Daisy, right? But yeah, as a matter of fact, if this were ever turned into a rom-com, Duke and Daisy would be the narrators of it, right? Because you've got that whole down-home country. Um, I think publisher, we could call it a campfire tale. And so, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I, I was in a mood. I'm an old single dude that's dating in the world. And I started thinking about the olden times and mail order brides. And I knew that I probably wasn't going to be able to get anywhere with that these days. Um, so I just write a story about it and, uh, and all the things that could go wrong. And of course, it's also a caper story. And it's a little bit of a romance story. Um, it, I'm, I'm hoping it's one of the weirdest of the weird space Western stories that David's collected so that he'll keep asking me to throw weird stories on his pile. But um, I don't know. It's a delight to write it. I find a voice. I find a character that I want to explore, and then I just go for a ride. Can I yeah, you definitely, you definitely don't see the end coming. But once you read it, everything led up to that point, and it makes sense. Thank you. Can I add a tiny bit to that? I read that story out loud last night to my partner at home, and I read it in. I read the cactus parts in John John Wayne's voice. I just have to Aww. say that because there's no Brenda. other way to do it. There isn't. I mean, you write down to him being a little bit of a prick. I mean, so <laughs> am I, was I not allowed to say that on the podcast? <laughs> I, I, that's, He's a that's cactus. Fine. No, it's, it's a cactus. cactus, so it's allowed. He's a cactus. He's sharp yeah. and pokey. Yeah. So, so I have to ask, Ken, before you started dating again, did you get a cactus? I got, no, I did better than that. I got a succulent. Well, aren't cactus is a type of succulent? I don't know. But I got something that just you couldn't kill. It's like right above plastic. <laughs> um, but I also got cats. And obviously, I still don't, ha- you know, I mean, I'm not, I'm not all partnered up. So I'm still experimenting. As a matter of fact, I just got some paper plates. And I'm trying that now. Um, <laughs> and, and so. Are those, those cheese balls? Those are cheese balls. Okay. Now, what would you want, uh, you know, I know you talked about kind of the loneliness and by the way, that's starting to be, that's kind of a theme so far, right? Between Cliff's story, even Brenda's story, you have a kind of a family in this big, broad planet with lots of space. 
And then Ken, definitely, definitely, especially with the, you know, uh, I, and I don't know in the very beginning if all the things you threw at your character were actually trying to cure loneliness or to make him crave more of it, but I'll just leave the audience with that. Right. Well, I appreciate getting, I just love getting the opportunity to tell these weird stories. And, um, you know, it didn't, I didn't know exactly where it was heading when I got in the car. I just had a rough notion and that it was going to be weird. Um, but yes, well, thank you. Well, and let me just sound off on that whole loneliness thing um, by quoting um, one of our, our, um, our predominant uh, theorists about space. And uh, that would be uh, Douglas Adams, where he said, space <laughs> is big, really big. <laughs> so yes, that's kind of the, what we were going for is how big space is and what it does to people. All right. Speaking of how big space is, Warlock rules, Hank. Yes. Uh, I don't. I don't know if I don't know if it'll be permissible to to say. I think you have to say the Chibulans because I think the other one is a Chib big yes. no-no. <laughs> um. Yeah. Uh, well, when I was uh, you know, invited uh, to submit for this, uh, I was told the title, and immediately I think, well, okay. I got to have a gunfight. I mean, this is high noon. I got to have a gunfight. So I was like, the challenge is, okay, how do you have a gunfight in the future without it being laser guns or something? You that, have a you lawyer know, write the story. That's well, you, you see, that's the thing, because uh, I, as a lawyer, only need to know enough science to bamboozle a jury. So that's not a whole lot. So I don't write hard sci-fi. Um, I know my limitations there. And it would come across as phony anyway, but you know you have to create a believable environment, a believable context and setting. So I gave it some thought, and I thought it, if we're in a futuristic setting out in space, uh, what would be a circumstance where you would have to go retro? And uh, as you know, Sean, uh, warfare is not always symmetrical. And uh, if you have a conflict in space, it could be where one side is much more technologically advanced, uh, but the other side has other, you know, it, intrinsic abilities to to uh, to hold their own. So like fine motor skills, <laughs> things like that. Yes, uh, and uh, in this case, uh, they were very concerned. The other side about human technology, and so for enforcement of their treaty, they wanted to. They believed that you had to have some kind of of uh, ultimate trial by combat entry, but they didn't like our technology. So they made it to where you had to use weapons from hundreds of years earlier if you were gonna do it. And so, uh, you know, I was a little worried that would be too contrived, but as I was fleshing it out, I thought it, it, it seemed to work given that uh, you have a very alien, no pun intended, culture you're dealing with. So, um, so then I had, you know, a, a predicate there for, or a gunfight. And uh, from there, the story was just forces at play where individuals, you know, get are swept up in it. They're pawns, you know, warfare is ugly. Um, competing interests, uh, you know, can roll over people and uh, don't tend to care about individuals. And uh, especially when lots are lots of things are at stake, lots of money, you know, lots of power, lots of, uh, of geopolitical um, implications you know are all in play here uh the single guy or woman uh their lives are 
don't amount to a hill of beans, as somebody famously mm -hmm. once said. So, um, and so that's what I think emerged as the theme. I try not to let the theme control what I'm writing too much because I want it to be character driven. Um, if, if you let the, the at least when, if I let the theme dictate, the story seems a little wooden, seems a little artificial, a little forced. So the themes emerge, you know, I think in good writing, the themes emerge from your understanding of the characters and the conflict and uh, the uh, realistic portrayal, you know, of, of the action there, the themes will come because we're surrounded by themes in life. Every, there's a theme in everything we do, everything we're faced with, every challenge we have, we always take away a theme, but it's never a theme that you see at the beginning. It's always in retrospect that you understand the theme. And I think fiction should emulate that. So, uh, you know, the only theme I had really in mind here was just, uh, you know, here's a guy who uh, is, because of an unusual set of circumstances, uh, hundreds of years in the future here, um, going back to having to have a gunfight against an alien uh, opponent. And uh, that was really all I needed to set the stage here. The rest of it uh, was just based upon uh, my understanding, somewhat cynical, also worldview of uh, you know, geopolitical uh, conflicts and uh, the various interests at play, whether they be uh, governmental or private, uh, monetary, things like that. And what is the one takeaway you'd want any reader to come out of that story with? Well, that, you know, some people's outlaws are other people's heroes. And uh, it, you know, the times change uh, and uh, histories get rewritten or remembered differently. And uh, you really can't always count on what's legal. You know, you can't always count on what's mandated. You can't count on what institutions tell you. You've got to do what's right. And uh, sometimes that could be considered cheating. Sometimes that could be considered unlawful or criminal. Uh, but that kind of context shifts. But what doesn't shift is who ultimately uh, people who know the real story would side with. And so uh, as facts emerge in history, you know, villains have become heroes and heroes have become villains. Um, and so uh, that's why, you know, I kind of had it play out the way it did. It's that, uh, you know, one man's outlaw is another man's hero, as they say. All right. Very, very well said, my friend. Walter John Williams, Westworld, essentially Hollywood in the stars. Yeah, I'll pretty start, much. I guess. Well, yeah. <laughs> Let's. Uh, uh, how did how did you come up with that? Well, whenever I do a anthology, I try to um, think of what other people in the anthology are going to write, and then make sure I'm not going to do that because I don't want there to be too much overflow or duplication going on. Mm -hmm. um, and so. You know, the first thing that came to mind is I just take a classic Western film and I do a science fiction version of it. And then I thought, what Western film? And if anyone else does this, what if we pick the same Western? So anyway, I started thinking about cinema in the West. And then rather than, and so my space Western uh, has to do with a group of filmmakers in space trying to make a Western film. Um, including having to import a bunch of horses from Earth, um, which then, um, you know, due to an accident, end up in a zero gravity situation. 
So you have to have the wranglers wrangling horses that are floating around in space and aren't very happy about it. And they're kicking and, and kicking up a fuss. And uh, there's a whole complicated scene about that. Uh, but most of the story is just about how you make a movie, mm -hmm. especially making a movie on a subject that's, to these people, totally alien. Um, they have to have, they not only have to have the Western explained to them, they have to have West explained to them. At one point, they're, you know, the director's explaining his vision, and these people are going, what, what's West? Because there's no <laughs> West right. in their space habitat. You know, there's north and south. Yeah, they're two arbitrary directions, but east and west they don't have. They have upspin and downspin. Um, even the even the lengthy not, not lengthy, but even the discussion on this. There's this drive for verisimilitude mm -hmm. in the film, but right. the question is: is what is the verus? You know, what are you trying to be true to the yeah. the cinema aspect, conception of the West or the actual conception, and, and yeah. I think the way that you illustrated it beautifully was the fact about the tumbleweeds. The tumbleweeds, yeah. Um, I had no idea. I thought that was fascinating. But go fine. ahead. I, I well, want the audience yeah, to hear this. So, because the director is influenced by classic Western films of yesterday, um, he wanted there to be tumbleweeds in his movie, and so you know they had to print them up. Um, and he was experimenting with the tumbleweeds and finding out how they tumble and how best to shoot them and stuff, and then realized. You know, somebody told him, or he looked it up himself, he realized that there were no tumbleweeds in the Old West. Uh, they came up from Russia in like the 1890s, but it's actually a Russian thistle. That's, that's the technical name for it, Russian thistle. Um, and so then he had this horrible crisis of conscience. He was dedicated to total authenticity in this film, uh, but he really wanted tumbleweeds to be there, even though they were inauthentic. And, and he's talking to the narrator, and the narrator is saying, well, it depends on whether you want to be. Uh, authentic to the cinema or authentic to history <laughs> and goes into this long, you know, that all of the films that have tumbleweeds in them, and there are a lot of good films that have tumbleweeds in them, and if you want to be authentic to them, you should feel free to put tumbleweeds in your movie, uh, which, and which actually convinces the director uh, to allow tumbleweeds in his film, although he has an enormous crisis of conscience over it, and he's agonizing right. for days um, because he's just that kind of guy. Um, well, it's very Hollywood. It's it's extremely yeah, Hollywood. Well, right? it's yeah. yeah. Part part of the part of the story is what it's like to work for a genius. And and my narrator, uh, who is brand new to the business, uh, and he's got through connections, he's got a job as the second second assistant director, which is an actual job you can have in Hollywood. Not the second assistant director, not the first assistant director, but the second second assistant director. That's an actual job title. Um, so he's got this rather ambiguous job, which essentially means he, anybody senior to him tells him what to do. Uh, and, uh, and he's, uh, this director is one of his heroes. And of course you shouldn't meet your heroes, should you? Uh, and I don't they, know. I, I, I actually like, uh, hanging out with you, Walter. Oh, uh, thank you. <laughs> no, it, it's, it's fascinating that we're talking about this because a lot of us have written historical period pieces yeah. and that's something that all of us as writers run into and of mm -hmm. course as people who edit that also have to deal with the idea of the audience or the readers conceived notion about what that period is like yeah. versus what it was actually like yeah i, th and, I think um, victorian historians have a lot to answer for 
<laughs> yes. Every time, um, every, every time, every time I end up in a historical discussion, as well, you know, uh, so and so said this back in 1841, and that's the last word. Well, no, it's not the last word. <laughs> Been a lot of words since then, but that one word, because coming down over the last hundred odd years, uh, you know, has has totally biased everyone's discussion. You know, um, but yeah, it's it's. You know, so I threw in some facts about the Old West that aren't generally known, or or actually they're, they're known, but there's not been thought about. That mm -hmm. one of the things is it was almost all young men. You know, 90% of the population were young men. There were very few old people, there were very few women. And they were heavily armed young men, mm -hmm. and they were drunk all the time, which explains the high mortality rate. And this film is set in the late 1860s and they hadn't invented the cowboy hat yet. Oh yeah, I remember that too, yeah. Yeah, so basically what people were wearing in that time were uh, bowlers or derby hats. And so, you know, picture cowboys in derby hats. That's what they wore, unless they were wearing Mexican sombreros or something. And the, the first Stetson had just been released, but it had a flat top and a flat brim and it looked like a Zorro hat. Um, and various other things like what happens with uh, black powder revolvers, where you're putting loose black powder down each of six cylinders and then tamping the bullet on top. And it turns out that the fire can spread really quickly. Mm -hmm. And so you can theoretically fire off all six cylinders at once. Um, well, even the fast load, right? When yeah, you take right. out the entire chamber and throw in another chamber to avoid having to go through yeah, that yeah, lengthy... The, the entire cylinder, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that was how you did speed loading in the 1860s. Now, so, in terms but of... At any rate, I'm trying to you know, weave this larger story about creation about it and about people finding out about all this stuff and then having to cope with it. They have to import wranglers from Earth to look after the horses and they have to bring a horse trainer to teach everyone how to ride. And there are the, the, two, the, the two protagonists of the film are a married couple who are going through a breakup other. as this film is being made. And one of them turns out to be a superb rider and the other one can't ride at all. Um, and so there's you know just all of this conflict that happens. I, I really enjoy writing about Hollywood. Uh, I've, I've done it several times and um, there are very few people in our field who do that because if they do have, get jobs in Hollywood, they don't wanna lose these jobs by telling anyone the truth <laughs> about anything. So, um, and I don't have a job in Hollywood and I don't care. So I'm happily using all the stories that I've acquired over the years. Yeah, I was about to ask that. How did, how did you acquire that knowledge? Just people who were in the industry? Did you spend any time well, I in have, the industry? I have work, done some work in film and TV, so part of it's that. But the other thing is, you know, I know a lot of people, you know, including that famous author that lives in Santa Fe, who spent a lot of time in Hollywood, and I know a lot of his friends, and uh, I know various other people who've spent a lot of time out there. Um, and they, they come back with the most amazing stories, but you're not, they're not about to write them. <laughs> I'm still crossing my fingers for a hardwired movie one day. Uh, well, so am I. And in fact, if you know anyone with $200 million to spare, 
um, you know, give him my phone number. That's let me let me see what happens with the royalty check from this. And yeah, okay. Oh, well, there we go. Right, yeah. You know, because this if this goes <laughs> viral, you know, we could we could get to maybe one millionth of that. So <laughs> now, what other like themes would you want folks to take home from this? Other than Hollywood I, is well, absolutely I, I think, bonkers. I think in, you know, in the, the the bigger theme has to do with how to how you create art and all of the obstacles that you have to do in order to do that. And that you know, we tend to credit very few people with films. We credit the director. You know, if we're writers, we credit the writers. <laughs> no one else does. <laughs> uh, if we're <laughs> and so. Um, you know, and, and there's the auteur theory. And there, there are some directors who are auteurs who control just sort of literally everything on the production, but they also have to wrangle 200 people. Mm -hmm. You know, there's an, it takes an enormous amount of people to make a film. And, you know, including, you know, the second, second assistant director who nobody knows what he does, right? Um, and so it is a collaborative medium. And every time I've worked um, in film and TV, it has been a collaborative medium. medium. I may be the only writer, but there's an awful lot of collaboration that goes on before you even start to write anything. You have to decide what to write and how to write and what's important about what you're writing and all of that. Um, and then it, it evolves. And if you're, if you're in TV, um, the network appoints this guy who's in charge of saying no. He's the executive vice president in charge of saying no. And you come up with an idea, say, you know, I'd, I'd like to, to set this on an alien world. No, we can't afford an alien world, but it's a science fiction series. <laughs> no, sorry, no, we set it on the, on the starship, which is the permanent set. <laughs> alien worlds are not on our budget. And I'm going, but yeah, anyway. So, or it's an alien world that looks a lot like Vancouver. Yeah, <laughs> pretty much, yeah. <laughs> yeah, even doing a Western, they say, oh, uh, horses? Yeah, horses. Ooh, you know, yeah. that's and things. That's expensive. You know, and things can go wrong. I, I had yeah. insurance. Um, one example of a, a a TV show that I wrote, and it was just a, a casting mistake. They had they had cast the perfect per person for it, but it turned out that she got work in a movie, so she had to she couldn't do the TV show. So they had a last second casting thing, and apparently she did a really great audition. And but then whenever they came to shooting it, she would freeze. Every time a camera was pointed at her, she couldn't remember her lines. They ended up dub just having her move her lips so that they could have another actress dub her lines and stuff. And, and so they had to do, I think it was 28 rewrites over a 10 day shoot to accommodate this problem. <laughs> and make sure that like the camera was never on the guest star. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, it was nobody's fault that this happened, but it ended up being a royal mess. I don't know. I I come from a different, I come from the, you know, kind of the military, right? It's the actress's fault. <laughs> because you can't say her lines. Like, yeah, you're right. out. <laughs> or the agent. <laughs> yeah. 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 Presumably she didn't know that she couldn't say her lines. She made, you know, anyway, I think she was fairly new. So, uh I would hope, again, you know, but I, I have that thing in my mind if with the, if with the original cast, you know, yeah. if the guest star had been the person that they originally cast with, it would have been awesome. All right. Let's uh, go back to David. That was, yeah. I, I could, I could, I could talk about this for hours, uh, but 
That's <laughs> keep keep folks uh, on track. So, David, are there any other stories you'd like to mention in this anthology or or call out? Oh, well, they're obviously they're all wonderful. But what I like to do is is get people who are known for this kind of thing, uh, especially if they've got some media tie-in experience. Um, and so I got uh, Dayton Ward and Kevin Dillmore uh, to to give me a story, and and of course they're they're well known for for uh, Star Trek and so forth. And um, they, I mean, these guys, I've known them for years. They come to Denver to the cons a lot, and um, and I've known them for ages, and I've wanted to work with them. Uh, actually, Dayton edited a story of mine for an anthology many years ago, and I wanted to return that favor. And getting him and and uh, Kevin Delmore together uh, for this project, you know, it's like usually like one's available, but the other isn't. But they were both, to, and I'm like, yes, yes. I was so happy to get them, and and they brought. Um, a whole like you know level of uh, uh, consciousness thing and AIs and and so forth um, and uh, or is that the is that the right one? Uh, no 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 oh they did, that was their story their story is about a soldier on the run sorry uh, I got a lot of stories in there I can't remember which one goes to which person sometimes uh, but no no they they gave a a, a soldier on the run and uh, hiding out uh, on a small town uh, in an in a, um, out, outpost and having that past come back to haunt them. That, you know, and that's, that's kind of a very Star Trek sort of thing, you know. Uh, oh, we're gonna go visit a planet and oh, here is this person that's supposed to be dead and they're still alive and hiding out and so forth. So that, that one was really good. Um, the uh, AI uh, was um, Milton Davis. Uh, he gave me a great uh, robot revenge story. Like, can a robot that quote unquote doesn't have emotions, uh, can it actually understand wanting revenge for the death of its owners and who helps that robot achieved that level of, of understanding of a very human uh, instinct. Uh, so that story was really good. Uh, Thea Hutchinson gave us uh, a story set in a space bordello. Uh, much like Cliff, she sold me on the idea like right off the bat. She's like, yeah, space bordello. And I'm like, I want to see that story. <laughs> um, and it ended up being uh, a caper uh, uh, bit, not a comedy like Ken's, but actually quite serious. Uh, and I like, and oh, just so, so very good. So, um, and then uh, um, uh, Susan Matthews gives us a, uh, uh, a great Susan R. Matthews, I could throw the R in there, um, who's a, a Bane author. And uh, she gave me a, a really good story about um, what, is, what is the cost of peace, right? Like if 
peace means murder, is it worth it? And, uh, and that's a question that runs through her story. So yeah, I mean, oh, and then uh, Peter Wax gave me um, a uh, um, kind of a steampunk space Western and samurai film combination about a, uh, a sentient airship who witnessed basically the end of a civilization and its own kind of role or accountability in that. So, you know, there's some elements of uh, genocide and honor and things of that nature. So it's a, it's a very deep story. And uh, I had read a, a much like a flash fiction version of this story many years ago. And I said, I want to see that longer and uh, asked him if he would be willing to revisit that story and plump it out and give it more of that kind of what happens on the outer rim when you uh, leave certain people to their own certain civilizations, to their own devices without any sort of uh, control and what happens. And so it's the story from this AI's point of view of what happens to its civilization uh, that it's responsible for. So. Now, when does your anthology come out? Uh, next week, Tuesday, if I'm not mistaken. So, And can folks yeah. buy the eARC right now on Bain.com? Yeah, they can buy the eARC. They can order uh, the, the, order the mass, uh, trade paperback. Um, it should ship uh, day and date uh, to them. Um, yeah, it's chock full of good stories. So it's definitely worth checking out, especially if you checked out the first one and liked it. This is more of that and um, tend to do it one more time. Um, that will be out sometime next year. And that is uh, last train from uh, last train out of out of, you know, because I'm carrying over the out of thing. Last train out of uh, Kepler 283C. And we have some great surprise authors in there for you. All right. Last question. Which story is your favorite? I'm just kidding. <laughs> Don't answer that question. <laughs> Them's fighting words. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. I know. Smile All right. Well, say that. Yeah. We all love our children equally. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Even if now, we don't. At, now, once we stop recording, I'll actually do. But uh, <laughs> no, seriously, right. I, I, I have a, a, uh, a blessing of riches when it comes to the authors I pick um, and, and who respond because, you know, I mean, I pick a lot of authors and they don't have the scheduling availability, but the ones who have the schedule always rise to the challenge that I, I ask them to, right? You know, is space a final frontier? That's the first question I asked every one of these guys. And every one of them said, hmm, how do we answer that? And they did, they did excellently. And I always say in my emails to them, you have honored me by your words. And hopefully you'll feel honored if you, if you, the audience out there chooses to read it because these are brilliant stories. All right. So I think by next week, so right now it is February 1st. This will show up, I think, sometime yeah, later this week. 
Yeah, so it's um, February, I believe it's February seventh. Uh, I believe it's the date. Yeah, Feb Tuesday, February seventh yeah. at Streets. So, yeah. All so right. by the time this broadcasts, it may already be out. So, uh, well, I'm hoping. I, I think this is supposed to appear on February third. We'll see. But oh, uh, okay, I like that. Yeah. yeah, that's why I tried to schedule you early, David. That's why I was so resistant. But anyway, well, <laughs> some some of us uh, some of us have had a, a rough end to twenty twenty two, including yeah. surgeries and stuff. So it's all, uh, it's all I appreciate your patience and and all of their patience with me as well as we get this engine rolling out of the station and hopefully. Um, with some of the great reviews we've already got, including Publishers Weekly, who gave us a, a, a stunning review of this. Um, I'm hoping that this train picks up speed and everybody here is going to uh, be talking about their stories for uh, awards next year. All right. So for the audience, definitely check out High Noon at Proxima B, Cliff. <laughs> Thank That's you for the astronomers. Yeah, you can take you can take Sean out of the army, but you can't take the army out of Sean. So anyway, thank <laughs> you very fine. much. Check out the book and have a fantastic day. Thank you, Sean, for doing thank this. You. Thank you. And now we bring you Timothy Zahn's Cobra. Earth's only hope was the Cobras. The colony worlds Adirondack and Silvern fell to the troughed forces almost without a struggle. Outnumbered and on the defensive, Earth made a desperate decision. It would attack the aliens not from space, but on the ground, with forces the troughs did not even suspect. Thus were created the Cobras, a guerrilla force whose weapons were surgically implanted, invisible to the unsuspecting eye, yet undeniably deadly. But power brings temptation, and not all the Cobras could be trusted to fight for Earth alone. Johnny Moreau would learn the uses and abuses of his special abilities and what it truly meant to be a Cobra. The morning dawned crisp and clear, with only a few scaly cirrus clouds to mar the deep blue sky. To Johnny it seemed wrong somehow that Aventine's sky should appear so cheerful on the day of MacDonald's funeral, and after Johnny's own restless, nightmare-filled sleep. Still, good weather should mean a large turnout at the funeral, and that should draw a lot of Chalinor's cobras. Perhaps Aventine was on his side after all. Feeling a bit more encouraged, he ate a good breakfast, showered and shaved, and at 8.30 emerged from his house in full cobra dress uniform. Lest and Tabor, looking as tired as he felt, were waiting for him. "'Morning, Moreau,' Lest said, looking him up and down. "'Neatest I've seen you since the day of the landing.' "'You're too kind,' Johnny said shortly. "'Now, if you don't mind, I have a funeral to attend. "'I'm sure you have somewhere you have to be, too.' "'He stepped between them and stalked down the street. "'They fell into step on either side and a pace behind him. "'There are about a hundred places I'd rather be going,' Lest said, "'and about a thousand people whose company I'd prefer.' But Torres seems to think you need someone to hold your leash, Johnny snorted. <laughs> Chaloner always did have a way with words. What the hell are you afraid of, that I'll start a riot or something at Ken's funeral? There's no point in taking chances, Tabor said dully. So far, Ariel's been peaceful. 
but mass meetings are always potentially explosive. A show of force is the best way to make sure no one gets crazy ideas. Johnny glanced back at him. You don't sound thoroughly convinced anymore, he suggested. Chalinor's high-handed methods getting to you? Tabor was silent for several steps. I liked MacDonald, too, he said finally. But Chalinor's right. The government here isn't working. There are ways to improve it that don't involve rebellion. That's enough, Lest interrupted. The time for talking politics is over. Johnny clamped his jaw tightly, but he really hadn't expected any other reaction. Lest wasn't just going to stand quietly and let him sprinkle extra water on the seeds of uncertainty that Tabor was beginning to show. But maybe, just maybe, there was enough there already for them to sprout on their own. Whether they would do so in time was another question entirely. Not since the last Landing Day festival had Johnny seen the square so crowded. In the center, resting on two waist-high stands, were the open coffins. From the edge of the square, MacDonald's face and folded hands were just visible. Between the coffins, sitting on the only chair in sight, was Father Vitkaskas. Without pausing, Johnny turned to his left, circling the crowd until he was standing in line with the foot of MacDonald's coffin. Looking around, he spotted at least six more of Chalinor's cobras grouped loosely together on the fringes of the crowd near him, their positions obviously having been chosen to take advantage of the slight rise there that would permit a better view of the area. Apparently, Chalinor really was worried about trouble with the crowd. "'Good morning, Moreau,' a voice murmured behind him. Turning, Johnny saw Chalinor step up next to Lest. "'A good turnout, wouldn't you say?' "'Very good,' Johnny said coldly. Ken was a very popular person. Killing him was probably one of your biggest mistakes. Chalinor's gaze flicked over the crowd before returning to Johnny. I trust you won't be foolish enough to try and take advantage of that, he said with the faintest edge to his voice. Lest, Tabor, and I will be standing behind you the whole time. And if you even look like you're about to make trouble, it'll be the last thing you ever do. And probably the last some of these other people do, too. He glanced significantly at the cobras standing to either side. Don't worry, Johnny growled. I have no intention of starting anything. Abruptly, the low murmur of conversation in the square faded into silence. Turning back, Johnny saw Father Vitkaskas had risen to his feet, and the funeral began. Johnny remembered afterwards very little of what was said that morning. He sang mechanically with the other people when necessary, and bowed his head at the proper times. But mostly his attention was on the crowd, picking out those people he knew best and trying to gauge their mood. Chris and her father he found easily, standing in the front row a quarter of the way around the circle from him. Mayor Tyler was near them, looking grimly dignified, a man determined not to show his shock at the sudden inverting of his world. A lot of the people were wearing that same expression, Johnny noted, and he could hardly blame them. The Cobras, their helpers and protectors, had seemingly turned against them, and no one was quite sure how to react. Some showed more uncertainty than others. Johnny noticed Almo Pyre shifting uneasily from foot to foot. Like Tabor, the teenager seemed to be having second thoughts about the side he'd chosen. A sudden rustle of cloth brought Johnny's attention back to the priest. The service was drawing to a close, he saw, and the crowd was kneeling for the final prayer. Hastily, Johnny dropped to his knees, glancing around as he did so. Chalinor's cobras were still on their feet, 
whatever feelings of respect they might have had overridden by the tactical necessity of keeping close watch on the crowd. Out of the corner of his eye he saw Almo hesitate, and then, with a glance in Johnny's direction, kneel with the rest of the people around him. Between the coffin stands, Father Vitkaskas had himself knelt, and as he began the requiescat, Johnny's eyes sought Chris, saw her hand slip under the hem of her long skirt to the device strapped to her leg, and MacDonald sat up in his coffin. Behind Johnny someone gasped, but that was all the reaction anyone had time for. MacDonald's hands unfolded themselves, settling smoothly down into what looked like the ready position for a double handshake, and the lasers in his little fingers abruptly spat flame. Tabor, standing directly in the line of fire, crumpled without a sound. Chalinor and Lest, their programmed reflexes finally breaking them free of their astonished paralysis, dodged to either side, raising their own lasers to counterattack. But MacDonald's forearms were already swinging rapidly to his sides, sweeping twin fans of death over the heads of the kneeling crowd. Lest made a choking sound as the beam caught him across the chest and he fell, lasers still firing uselessly at the man he'd already killed once. Chalinor broke off his own attack barely in time to duck down and fell all the way to the ground as Johnny's anti-armor laser flashed. The rest of the cobras around the square, their reflexes and targeting locks already keyed to the futile task of avoiding MacDonald's attack, reacted far too slowly to Johnny's entry into the battle. Many, in fact, probably never realized anyone else was shooting at them until it was too late. Between MacDonald's wild spray and Johnny's more accurate sniping, they made a clean sweep. It was over before anyone in the crowd thought to scream. "'We're not going to be able to keep this secret, you know,' Mayor Tyler said, shaking his head. His hands were shaking, too. "'If nothing else, we, and about a quarter of the towns in Caravel District, for that matter, are going to have to ask the Governor-General for new cobras.' "'That's okay,' Johnny said, wincing slightly as Eldyarn applied salve to his shoulder, where a near miss had burned him. No one's going to try and avenge Chalinor or pick up where he left off, if that's what you're worried about. All the fence straddlers he said he had standing by will be moving like crazy to make sure they come down on the right side. The warlord movement is dead. He cocked an eye at the mayor. You just make sure your report shows that only a very small minority was involved in the plot. We can't have people getting paranoid about us. There's still too much work on Aventine that only Cobras can do. Tyler nodded and moved toward the door to his private office. Yeah, I just hope Zhu doesn't take the whole thing wrong. I'd hate for Ariel to get stuck with the blame for Chalinor's ambition. The door closed behind him and Chris stood up. I suppose I'd better go too. I've got to get busy fixing the phone system. Chris, Johnny hesitated. I'm sorry that had to be done at Ken's funeral and that you had to... to see all of that. She smiled wanly. That extra damage? She shook her head. Ken was long gone from that body, Johnny. He couldn't feel those lasers. You were the one I was worried about. I was scared to death you'd be killed, too. Johnny shook his head. There wasn't really much danger of that, he assured her. You, Orin, and Father Vitkaskis set things up perfectly for me. I just hope Ken's reputation doesn't... I don't know. It already has, she sighed. The rumors are already starting to travel out there, to the effect that Ken was faking death so that he could get in one last shot. Johnny grimaced. Yes, that would be what they thought. 
and within a few days and a hundred kilometers that story would probably be bent completely past recognition. The avenging cobra, perhaps, who'd returned from the dead to defend his people from oppression. A legend like that might not be all bad, though. It ought to at least slow down future Chalinors, he murmured, thinking out loud. I don't think that's something Ken would dislike having attached to his name. Chris shook her head. Maybe. I can't think that far in the future right now. You sure you really feel like working? he asked, studying her strained face. Ned could start the phone repairs alone. I'm all right. She reached for Johnny's hand, squeezed it briefly. I'll see you later, Johnny, and thank you. She left, and Johnny sighed. The real thanks goes to you two, he told Eldjarn. The reaction was beginning to hit him, and he suddenly felt very tired. I don't think I could have faced having to wire all those sequential relays to Ken's servos, even if I'd known how to do it. It must have been pretty hard on Chris especially. We all did what we had to, Eldjarn said obliquely. You know, though, that it's not over yet. Not by a long shot. Zhu's going to react to this, all right. If he's smart, part of his reaction will be to start listening to what Cobras have to say on governmental policies and procedures. You'll need to take advantage of the opportunity to offer some good concrete suggestions. Johnny shrugged wearily. I'm like Chris. I can't really think that far ahead right now. Eldjarn shook his head. Chris can get away with that excuse. You can't. As long as there are cobras on Aventine, the threat of something like this happening again will always be with us. We have to act now to make sure that possibility stays small. Oh, come on, Oren. You're talking politics now, and that's light years out of my experience. I wouldn't even know where to start. You start by making the cobras feel that an attack on the government is an attack on them personally, Eldjarn said. Ken fought Chalinor because the rebellion was an attack on his family pride. You probably had similar reasons, he hesitated. For most of you, I suspect, we'll have to appeal to enlightened self-interest. Once your self-interest has been properly linked with the government's. Johnny frowned as understanding began to come. You're suggesting we be brought directly into the government somehow. I think it's inevitable, Eldjarn said. And though his voice was firm... His restless hands indicated his uneasiness. You cobras have a lot more of the power on this world than the system has taken into account. And one way or another, the system has to adjust to reflect that reality. We either give it to you in a controlled, orderly way, or risk the chaos of Chalinor's method. Like it or not, Johnny, you're an important political force now. And your first political responsibility will be to make sure Zhu understands that. For just a second, Johnny grimaced at the irony. Perhaps in a small and unexpected way, Chalinor had won after all. Yes, he sighed. I guess I'll have to. That was another installment in Timothy Zahn's Cobra. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks, as always, to Audible.com and podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. Praise, thanks, and gratitude to David Boop, Walter John Williams, Hank Schwabel, Brenda Cooper, and Ken Scholes for talking with us today. And good night, Tony Daniel, wherever you are. This is David F. Shirerod coming to you from a soundproof bunker somewhere deep in the heart of Texas. Join us here next week at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars.